HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today to ask Max Silvestri, a wonderful comedian, as well as more. Yeah, more of so (laughs) many things. Don't put me in a box. It's only the first 30 seconds of the show. I think it says on your Twitter, um, you know, short bio, whatever it is, and human. Yes, I'm a comedian and a person. I'm I'm so many things. Uh, (laughs) I'm more than just a creator of jokes. I'm also a liver of life. Well, I'm going to ask you... The question I think most comedians hate most. Oh, boy. Say something funny. That's, well, see, it, it, one of the reasons we don't like it is it's not even a question. It's yeah. a command. It's yeah. an immediate <laughs> command to do your job. Uh, and it's something I get often. This is the least funny answer I could give. And probably I've been a comedian 10 years. I should now have a stock response so as to deflate the ire that this raises in me anytime uh, <laughs> someone commands me to be funny. Um, because but you, I got nothing. You have stock responses. I mean, when someone heckles or interjects in a way there are callbacks right i mean just in daily life i have stock responses you know i just feel like i'm wearing a human suit and i'm just trying to say the right things to make people you know i'm always looking for about 90 seconds of small talk uh with anyone i meet so you know i have a lot of stock light comedy things that i say to make people so that the conversation is over so I just always have stock responses to just end things. <laughs> so at this all time. is just going to be a series of ninety second. Yeah, yeah. Quips uh, that's how long the show is, right? I yeah, didn't do yeah, a lot. It's absolutely. ninety seconds, right? And I think we'll we're play the outro, Jack. We are yeah. Done. If we just plug my website, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, but so, no, I do. I, yeah, you certainly like. I host a weekly show, and I have for six years, and you know. You don't. I don't. I'm not someone who like makes a list of stock responses, but I start to realize that like, I I fill in blanks. The same way. You know what I mean? Well, let's fill in the blanks starting from when you began wearing that human suit. Sure. The Poconos. 
Uh, yeah, I lived in the Poconos for five years. Uh, it was a strange... So I was born in New Jersey and don't have many memories of that. Uh, but we lived there and my parents had like a contracting business together. So they were architects and uh, renovated houses. And it was like a good time to be there because uh, people were still doing like vacation homes and stuff there. We moved away right before it got incredibly depressing and weird. Like the Poconos now are like pretty sad. There was like a lot of weird real estate loan mortgage scams. I think and... all the strip clubs are bottomless and BYOB. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I don't know if that's sad or engaging for a lot of my listeners. <laughs> right, right. Please check them out right yeah. now. For all the <laughs> listeners in the Harrisburg, Scranton, Allentown area, uh, go check it out. Um, but it was a weird... Because, like, it was a strange place to live to start consuming media because the only time I would hear about the Poconos was as a punchline in jokes on, like, sitcoms and things. Because, like, the Poconos were, like, this sad place where they had, like, honeymooner scam resorts and people would talk about Mount Airy Lodge, which was the big billboard with the heart-shaped jacuzzi. Um, it's all kind of a bummer. It's weird to have your place that you are living in be like a joke. So you did, know? did you feel like you were rife with material from having lived there? I was just, you know, I was just, a, I was just nine years old. I was just trying to get by. I wasn't uh, worrying about assembling material yet. I'm still not worrying about it too hard, but at the time it definitely, I'm like very not good at looking back in the sense of like, I moved away when I was 11 and I don't think I ever talked to any of my friends ever went back, have any connection whatsoever. I'm always, Going forward, going forward. If I had to move away from this town tomorrow, no one would ever hear from me ever again. <laughs> so let's talk about another town you totally Kaiser so say, Boston. Sure. Boston uh, is a nice place. <laughs> I never lived in Boston. I'm from the suburbs. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's weird that so many suburbs that are ultimately like just pretty bland and white and boring in the New England area have this really intense like Massachusetts boston connection because they're not that they're not like particularly working class or hard like or hard or have that much history um i was not a like i never went into boston as a kid like i and people will be like oh you're from boston like boston versus new york like uh. i'm like no new york always seemed <laughs> cooler to me than boston that's why i moved here but it, was, it was a feeding ground for comedy sure um, you know Dennis Leary, yeah, uh, Dane Cook, um, yeah, a lot of people. I mean, I think it's a uh, it's a place that builds a lot of character, and it's a great place um, to move away from. You know, like I think uh, it's good to have been from there, and then I, yeah. and then to leave. I, I went to college there, and I always consider like twenty three the age where you're too old to be in Boston. Yeah, if you're there longer, it's totally reasonable, but you're going to be there forever. Yeah. And that is like going to be a large part of your identity. And you feel creepy at bars. <laughs> at 23, sure. you feel creepy sure. at bars. Maybe you were going to like a lot of BU bars or something like that where you were uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, seeing where it was weird to see 23-year-olds when you were an 18-year-old kid that had a fake ID. model, of course, <laughs> my favorites. So from Boston coming to New York, um, you know, a lot of artists find themselves in the restaurant industry either as servers as yeah. cooks did you parlay your school into work life in, in that same fashion yeah you know this is uh sounds embarrassing i've never had a restaurant or service job of any kind i did construction with my family growing up and i hated it i hated it so much partly was because i was working for my dad uh when i was like 12 like building decks and foundations and all this stuff that i felt like, I shouldn't have been doing. I should have been playing with friends and hanging out and going to camp. But instead, like, I worked every summer with them. So 
I made, I was like, I don't ever want to work with my hands. I hate this. It was almost like I said that to my parents. It's like a rejection of the life they had. I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't like building things. I don't like fixing stuff. I don't like renovating our own home and being like, we're going to put another bathroom in. We just have to live without walls for <laughs> eight months or whatever and have no doors on your bedroom while we like build out, you know, the uh, the guest bedroom or whatever. I hated that. So I like got into IT stuff, like fixing computers and things as a hobby when I was like a sophomore in high school. And then I just only like every summer, every vacation, I did that. And sort of moved up in that as I was, like, going to college for artsy-fartsy things and, like, making short videos and doing improv and, you know, wasting a lot of money. Uh, but then when I moved to New York after, um, I was like, I'm not going to... I don't want to... I want to do comedy. I want to, like, make art. But I don't want to uh, be broke doing it. I don't want to eat ramen. I don't like ramen that much. And I don't like living <laughs> with 10 roommates. So, I uh, yeah, I moved to New York a day before I started at um, MoMA. So I worked at MoMA for seven years. And I just did computer stuff for them, but it was like kind of a nice conflation of my vague degree and the fact that I'd like worked on, you know, computers a long time. Um, but yeah, so then I basically did that until I was a comedian full time. And that's the whole story. That is, there's not, I mean, <laughs> you know, MoMA, I really, I was like, you know, of all the places to have a computer job, a, an office job. MoMA seems like a very chill one. You know, it's like this important cultural institution filled with young, interesting, beautiful people. It's like a center for so much activity and excitement in New York, free access to it. Like, what's a cooler first date than like bringing a girl through like the galleries when they're closed on a Tuesday? Like, this place is the best, and it is the best, but that novelty wore off about eight which, months Which in. 80s movie is that where they roller skate through? Oh, yeah. I can picture it, but I can't think what it is. I don't know. I never got to roller skate through it, but yeah. <laughs> I did get to walk through and like see, you know, stuff in a totally empty museum. But that novelty wore off pretty quickly. So I was, I did it as a job uh, for six more years after the novelty wore off yeah. while I was taking all my vacation to like tour to, you know, make videos or make pilots and, and sort of try to get my ga- my foot fully into the door well, of comedy. The payoff has come. Yeah, it, it, it takes a while. You just have to be patient. New York Magazine calls you one of ten comedians people find funny, which at first when I read it felt like a dig. It's a little bit yeah. backhanded. <laughs> people. Yeah, just people. It's a very vague. They like were really non-committal. Uh, it's not like these are our ten funniest comedians or these are the ten comedians that like professional <laughs> comedians find funny. I don't know what they're... No, just uh, overall people. Overall. The, the median person finds funny. Exactly. A lot of good names were on that list. Hannibal Burris was on that list. Kumail Nanjani. They're both doing very great. Um, and you, you've been on tour with a few of these. You've been on tour with Aziz Ansari, John Mulaney, mm-hmm. uh, to name a few. Uh, created Big Terrific, a weekly live show with Jenny Slade and Gabe Liebman. Now housed at the Cameo Gallery. Yeah, we correct? started it at this place, uh, sadly no longer in existence, called Soundfix Records. That was like an old Williamsburg record store that uh, had a cafe in the back. So we started there like six years ago, then moved to Cameo, which is a rock club. And uh, Gabe and Jenny have moved on to Greener Pastures in Los Angeles, working in the television and film industry. But uh, I, uh, I'm still here, still <laughs> here doing it by myself every week. Loving it. Yeah, every yeah. second of it. I'm there pretty often. I like L.A. too. Yeah. Both are great cities. I actually found you through Eater.com. Okay, you, yeah. You were doing some writing for them. For a long time. I wrote a lot of words yeah. about Top Chef. So tell them. me about those words and tell me about your infatuation or dissection of Top Chef. 
You know, it's... I think everybody or anybody with a sense of humor likes to watch TV and comment on it. I think it's something that um, is pretty built into our culture. And I think reality television especially um, is built for that. You know, there's something about like serialized television and even like sitcoms and like they're doing the work for you of like this is what's supposed to happen and this is everyone's reactions to it. But I think reality shows present even when they're campy, are kind of like, this is the world of the show, but the, there's a lot of room f- to fill in like what you're actually feeling about it. Of like Whether it's fair, it's not fair, if people are stupid, if it's embarrassing, if it's so cheesy, if it's fake, whatever it is, none of that commentary is like there on those shows. So I think like those shows are built for people to talk about them. And Eater, probably seven years ago, I think after the first season of Top Chef, maybe the second season... They had someone literally recap the show it, like it was a science report where it was not that there's anything wrong with it. it. Like no one was really recapping television then, but they just sort of were like, you know, this is relevant to our genre, which is, uh, you know, covering the chef world. So this is what happened. This is what they cooked and this is who lost. And I was watching the show. It was like a cool concept. I wasn't super into food at the time. I mean, I like to eat it and uh, occasionally cook it, but... Um, I was just kind of like, this is so boring. And uh, the editor was a friend of mine and was like, can I let me write it the next season? So I just sort of did these like weird, wild things that were just stream of consciousness, 2,000, 3,000 word riffs on the episode that were as much about me as the show um, and just kind of kept doing it out of momentum, even as maybe my passion for <laughs> commenting on the show waned. But people's passion for reading those recaps, not just mine, but like, on the whole, like, I feel like that's a fascinating thing that someone smarter than me should write a book about is not just the recap culture, but the reading of recap culture like that. There is this big Internet population that wants to wake up the morning after watching a show and not just talk about it, but read other people's opinions on it and be like, and I think it helps you crystallize your own thoughts, maybe catch up on what you miss. But a lot of people read those recaps that don't even watch it. Like they just like living just through to be the on lens. The ups. Part, I be guess part so. Of some kind of consensus. I, uh, yeah. I'd like to, you know, not miss out at the water cooler or whatnot. Um, so, you know, I wrote these things that I thought were funny. It's, it's a rare, as a comedian and a writer, it's like a, a the rare medium where you basically, can make a lot of humor without having to waste time on the setup or the premise building because you're you're writing to an audience that ideally has just watched what you've watched you know like so you can write comedy without having to build the world and then make fun of it you can only make fun of it so like as someone who's interested in jokes you can write a very dense thing yes i have to do a bit of traffic copping and explaining like that they all go here and they only have a minute to buy this. Like I have to fill in some of those blanks, but then I can just reference like, you know, and Stefan looks like this and I don't have to say why he looks like that. Well, it's because he's wearing a bandana that I said he actually looks like he's a gypsy and like people (laughs) will have seen it or I just put an image up and it's like this. It's very satisfying as a comedian to like, it's why I think when you watch a, a, a live comedy show and maybe something weird happens during one comedian set and the next comedian gets up and starts talking about it. It's almost always going to be more satisfying than whatever jokes he had prepared because like he's immediately commenting on something without having to explain it. Like it's a shared thing. It's why topical humor, I think hits so hard. Um, Is is this the same way you, you started learning or feeling about food? Because seemingly, you know, your interests weren't that huge in, in, in the world of gastronomy. 
Sure. You, you did cook. You did eat. Yes, every day. Through exploring, every day. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't like a, a flu or something. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there seems like, you know, through this world, um, you know, your lens opened up and then you cared more about what was on the plate aside from just the personalities that were behind the lens. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I was always someone that was maybe more interested in food than friends were or, you know, certainly in college, like I liked food more and was like a little bit more curious about where my next meal was going to come from. And that was really just a family cultural thing. Like uh, my dad, Italian American, you know, eating and the table was sort of how we organized our life all growing up. It was like, we always had a dinner cooked at home, like every night sat down, ate together. You know, when we traveled, it was like, where are we eating next? It was like our main family activity was to cook or to go eat somewhere. So that was always how my brain kind of worked. And just being in New York, I think in the, you know, late 2000s, you would have to have been particularly stubborn to avoid the rise of, you know, food being a a cultural category rather than just a, you know, niche for some people. Like, I mean, it just became part of, I guess, the conversation. I mean, maybe I was there a little bit ahead of some people, but, you know, everyone has opinions on restaurants now, and restaurants in every city, you know, feel like restaurants in Brooklyn. I believe you went to Brown. I did, yeah. I almost went to college there solely on the fact of a sandwich shop. What sandwich shop? Jeff's. Jeff's. The one my, and only. My, uh, my senior, after my senior year, after I graduated, I lived for a summer above Jeff's. See, I didn't eat it once. That would have been my downfall. <laughs> I didn't like Jeff's. Yeah, yeah. That, I love sandwiches and didn't like Jeff's. I'm sorry to disappoint that, that you. That pickle barrel. And I actually I know, think, the pickle barrel is a novel thing. Yeah, and I actually think um, Wiley Friends of WD-50, yeah. Father Dewey started Jeff's. Really? Which is a weird New York That's a great connection. piece of trivia. Because yeah. isn't Wiley from... I thought he was from, from the New York area, or no? I'm He's not from sure. Yeah, I but I, I didn't end up going there for a couple of reasons, but mainly because I couldn't go to college solely based on the idea of a sandwich of free pickles yeah yeah, yeah. yeah the like, uh though and i you know i think the reason i didn't eat it much that summer i lived directly above it was because a lot of people don't stay in providence for the summer because it gets hot as balls and there is little air conditioning and i was just hot and dying all summer so the idea of going down and getting a pickle floating in like <laughs> tepid water uh tepid Pickle juice was not my idea of, like, a cool-off refreshment. Like, all I did was, like, keep a fan on my face and drive to get ice cream and, like, swim in quarries. Now picklebacks are all the rage. They are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I I hope Jeff's was able to harness that uh, and, and get a liquor license for themselves. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break okay. and come back, talk about your first stand-up comedy album, King Piglet. Oh, cool. FYI Network's The Feed and sure. so much more. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. 
full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Max Silvestri. And uh, we were just talking about pickle barrels during the summer. Pickle barrels. Yeah. The world's biggest pickleback. Yeah. A hot <laughs> summer pickleback. Just a whole, just dunk your head in and drink it down. Yeah, exactly. Just absorb it osmotically through yeah. your pores <laughs> until it's gone. Stand-up comedy, obviously, is, is your day, night, afternoon, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty uh, multi-hyphenate in the sense of that I get bored easily and do, you know, I'm a comedian, but like there's a lot of different ways to fill in that box these days besides just stand-up comedy. So I do like a good, you know, I host a weekly stand-up show and do a good bit of touring and put out an album, but like I feel like five days a week I'm also working on other things. Well, let's talk about that album. Sure. King Piglet. Yes. You know, the cover it's, it has a slice of pizza with a fried chicken wing in yes. it, you know, obvious reference to food. But what does King Piglet mean to you and, and that wonderful, you know, combi snack that you made? You know, uh, it's just, it's a riff that came off the top of my head the night we were recording the album and is on the album. And a friend, this comedian Joe Mandy, was just like, that is a very funny turn of phrase. And it sort of describes my kind of life philosophy in that in an ideal world, I fight against this impulse all the time. I would just get to just sit on a throne and just like do nothing and watch things and have food brought to me and sleep between it. Like my passions are on the lazy side. Like, yeah, I want to like create work and I want to be respected and I want to have a family and I want to make money and I want to be fulfilled um, and make my, you know, hobby my career and you'll never work a day in your life whatever i want to do all those things but really i just want to um eat meals and drink and sleep yeah so king piglet as the sort of character that just like is a uh princely little slob is is my dream life that i will unfortunately probably never get to achieve and in your dream life what kind of foods would you be fed you know, I mean, my tastes always run heavier, you know, like just being from an Italian-American household, like, you know, those comfort foods tend to be, you know, cutlets and heavy things that are covered in cheese and have cheese and pepper, you know, like I like heavy food, but I really do like trying. There's nothing I, you know, we had a sort of, I was never a picky eater growing up and my dad, whenever we would entertain, he would always say to guests, especially kids who were often picky you know, all that I ask is that you try it once. Welcome to say no after that, but just try things and try everything. And, and in life, that is my philosophy about things. Like I, and especially food, like I would love to eat a different thing every meal, you know, forever, if it was not a hassle. Like I'm certainly a guy that likes being a regular places and I get lazy and I have my comfort foods and I can be a boring cook. But um, I also just love trying, trying, trying. Always. Let's talk about where you've been a regular. You live in Williamsburg. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been like trying to build up a bit of a regular profile at this new place, Grand Street Bar and Grill. Um, it's kind of speaks to like, I'm saying it speaks to like a suburban part of me will sound like a slight on that place because they have really well done food and it is not that. But we, growing up, like often our Friday night place would be this place called Kennedy's this pub in Westboro, Massachusetts that had like kind of standard 
Irish American bar food where you had your burgers, your steak tips. They maybe would have a pasta primavera for like the vegetarians, but it was like a lot of fried appetizers and um, like rib sticking delicious things and drinks. And, you know, it segued into being a more drink-based place after 10 p.m. And so I just have really fond memories of, like, going to kind of a barry vibe with, you know, scuffed wood booths and, you know, loud music uh, with my family and eating. Um, and that place, even though the food is really, really good, it's, like, heavy and bar food feeling. And I just really like the energy there. So I try to get there at least once a week, though... At the same time, I like fight. You know, I'm like someone that like will I, I go all in on eating and then I step out, if that makes sense. Like I'll just be when I'm working a lot, I'll just be eating out all the time and being really gross and terrible. to my. <laughs> you know, I'm not good at moderation. I'm not good at like going out every night or every couple nights and just like, yeah, let's split an entree and I'm just going to have one glass of wine and then we'll go home. It's like every time has to be, you know, I need to. I need to leave feeling disgusting. Well, the Grub Street certainly had a good week. Yeah, I mean, it was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, <laughs> and they even cut out a lot of food I yeah. ate. Uh, I was eating between every meal just like so many beers and a lot of cheese. And they were just like, you ate so much that you hit our word limit count. So we have to cut <laughs> out some things that you're Constant eating. Constant visits and soliloquies to C-Town. Yeah, love that place. I've been to C-Town almost every day this week. I've been trying. This is like a rare two weeks that I'm in New York uninterrupted without a lot of responsibilities. So this is like the first two weeks, and I don't even know. I haven't been out to eat since I got back from California last Monday. I've like cooked every meal. So I've been like living in C-Town and dreaming. And it's been a kind of beautiful weather. There's nothing I've wanted more than to go out to eat and drink. And I'm just like, these two weeks... I'm going to cook every day. I'm going to be healthy. But then as soon as it's done, like, I have some work this weekend, and I'm already planning. I just figured out, I'm like, yes, this is where I'm coming to Roberta's here, where we're, where we're taping on Tuesday night. And I'm, you know, it's like one pizza to start to lay the base <laughs> for the mm-hmm. drinking and then moving on to, like, full rounds of appetizers and entrees. Which, this seems like the antithesis to how you were set up at the beginning of that diet, which was the, I'm going away for the weekend and I need to clear out my fridge salad, which right. is one of my favorite tasks. Yeah. You know, when, when you're, you're on vacation or work travel yeah. and you have to figure out a way to utilize everything that's not going to be good when you get back. Yeah. So with the cooking chops you have now, it's always into salad or are there no, certain I mean, techniques I do, yeah, or I do a lot of recipes you like? Um, I... I work well off, like, systems. I'm, like, sometimes not good at improvising. I am in, like, uh, comedically and conversationally, but I'm not very good with, like, systems in my life. So, like, I kind of need to have a plan for things. So I really try to, like, figure out what am I going to do with all this stuff? How am I going to – what am I eating tomorrow? What am I eating tonight? Because when faced with just a fridge, either it's just going in a salad, like, vinaigrette and just, like, mashing it up with things and eating it like it's a job with a giant spoon in front of the TV. I, like, need to plan. Otherwise, like, I'm not that sort of person that's just like, oh, well, I've got one hard-boiled egg, and I've got, do we have some smoked trout in there? And just, like, pulling together something off the cuff, you know, like uh, a French housewife or whatever. Just like, and, yeah, we'll have people over for a dinner party. It's fine. I'm sure we can throw <laughs> something together. That is not my vibe at do all. Do a little rillette and grabiche with that uh, yeah, fish and egg. Yeah, we have leftover pork, yeah. and yeah, it's all going to be great. Um, no, I'm someone that, like, has to plan things out like that. I make a lot of lists and a lot of trips to C-Town. So, um, but luckily not having a normal job, I have the time to just wander in. So I, like, know the daytime. Like, C-Town is the local supermarket where I live, and, you know... First thing in the morning is no good. Lunch is terrible because that is when all the old ladies 
in like the Italian ladies in the neighborhood all do their shopping. So then you've got people all with rolling carts uh, and like 500 items and EBT cards and like the whole like have to put the hot stuff on in cash and they have a little coin purse and that like that is when I'm like I can't like I need to get in and out. So I usually like to shop around like 430. That's kind of my sweet spot before people get home from work. You were saying that you don't have a normal job and FYI Networks, the feed, seems like the most abnormal job. Yeah, it's very strange. It's not like any other show on the ne- on air. And I don't mean that in like just a uh, plugging my own show. I also mean like it's its own <laughs> weird thing. It's, it's a little bit like um, if you've seen Top Gear, which is a long-running car Gear show. I love Top Gear so much. It's a little bit like that, maybe less of the serious discussion about cars like they have. It's Top Gear for food, but the idea of you have these three hosts – with very different perspectives on the food world. So in the case of the show, it's me, who's an enthusiast, but very much an amateur, an outsider to the world, and, uh, I mean, a comedian, so ideally entertaining, but also a bit of the voice of every man. And then you have Gail Simmons, who is a judge on Top Chef and a host of Top Chef Masters, and she's you know, an editor at Food & Wine and a bit of a critic, but also a bit of a cook and a personality and spans both worlds, has a sense of humor. And then you have Marcus Samuelson, uh, owner of Red Rooster, who uh, you know is a very good TV judge, but a serious chef and has serious chops, and like comes from a you know legit cooking background, uh, to put it lightly. So the idea is that they kind of throw topics and food at us, literally throw food at you. Uh, that certainly does happen in yeah. the show, uh, <laughs> but they, we kind of get these vague things that touch on the food world um, and all go off on our own into the world. Um, to learn things, to joke around, to meet real people, and kind of come back with our own interpretation of the challenge. Mark has often cooked something, learns about a new technique, a new restaurant, cooks things because that's his strength. I'm usually doing something insane and weird that has nothing to do with cooking because I, you know, don't want to cook on this show. So I go learn, you know, self-defense and uh, knife defense skills from a gun store owner in Jersey City. How that relates to the show is tricky, but I invite <laughs> people to watch uh, Thursdays in late August. Um, but it is just sort of, we all go on this weird journey. It's about, and it's about, uh, we present these challenges to each other, and it's sort of one-upmanship. It's very tongue-in-cheek. There's no, like, real winning or judging or anything like that. It's all kind of um, just about, I guess it's about having fun with food without treating it preciously. We sort of felt that, uh, or the smart people behind the show felt that, everything on TV still kind of presents food as this, you know, niche sort of corn, like for enthusiasts only, you have to be a fan of it. So all the shows are either didactic and dump and stir, like, you know, still kind of marketed towards like housewives, like here's how to cook these muffins. Here's watch this. This is how you do it. Or even when it's talking about food culture in general, it's very celebratory and there's no irony to it. And it's just like, this is the most amazing. You have to try, you know, a Clamato or whatever it is. Like, that it's it's all very just like screaming and laudatory. And that I think people now, and you can see it on, you know, blogs and magazines. And I, I think normal people now just talk about food like it's, uh, like it's music, like it's TV. It's just another cultural corner in our country that we all are like aware of. Some are more into it than others, but... Um, we all have some knowledge, even if you're not, if you would never call yourself a foodie, you probably feel comfortable walking to a bar that has like a cocktail list and you've heard of like, you know, 
uh, roasted Brussels sprouts. You know, like we live in this world where it's like just been normalized outside of New York and L.A. and that we don't have to treat it preciously. So this show is trying to like kind of have a sense of humor about food and talk about it the way my friends and I talk about it, which is not like, oh, my God, you have to eat this thing there. It's like we'll change like let's all have a meet up there and do it like we don't we're not treating food that preciously like we like going to nice restaurants, but also we don't care if we go to the same place again. And, you know, like we also like, you know, uh, fast food and have low tastes as well as high. So So what have you learned from the show? You must have walked away with some kind of you know, foundation or education that you didn't have before about food in general. Um, I have learned a good bit. Marcus and Gail are really smart and know everybody and everything. And I certainly knew that going in, but like the tone of the show is like, I'm doing my own thing, a lot of it. And then as are they, and then we all kind of meet up and, you know, it's a bit competitive. So I'm always like, you know, being like, ah, my idea is going to be better than them. Like they're sort of dumb. They don't know what they're doing. I'm a comedian. I'm very clever. Uh, they're out of touch. And then every time we like talk about food seriously, they know everything. There's a reason that they are uh, very successful food personalities and business people <laughs> in the food <laughs> world. It's like they've met everyone. They've eaten everywhere. Marcus has traveled everywhere, cooked everything, knows every chef, has a story about everybody. Um, it's, it's daunting and uh, intense to like be side by side. And occasionally I do have to cook things or present them food. And I'm like, this is a little ridiculous that like yeah i'm like pretty proud of my like chicken parm recipe and i like make ragu occasionally but uh this is intense to have marcus <laughs> tasting my <laughs> dish and then he comes at me with like some insane you know ethiopian injera sushi that he's made with like you know salmon caviar that blows my mind and i'm like yeah yeah you're really good at cooking yeah. <laughs> almost every episode i forget yeah <laughs> and then he like you know because it's like you're you're serving food under hot lights and it's like oh this won't actually taste good this is all just tv or whatever and then we dig into marcus's food and i'm like no yeah you're <laughs> god damn you're really good at this yeah yeah well maybe you should stick to the roadies yeah, I, I mean yeah, yeah. that's the thing is that i like try at this point like, we're, we're working on another thing right now, uh, uh, sort of a special, and they, like, want me to be cooking for it. And I'm like, guys, it's much more interesting to have Marcus cook. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to cook and make my crappy version of whatever. Like, yeah, I can, like, find recipes and I cook, like, well, but it's not going to be as interesting as what he's doing. So let me go fight with a knife skills expert in Jersey City. It's but I do love that you took the train in your Grub Street diet and made yourself a Boulevardier. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do like cocktails and I like drinking and I am, I am an ambitious cook. I just don't think it's fun to be an ambitious cook when you're working with Gail Simmons and Marcus Samuelson. They're not going to be impressed that I read the newest Bon Appetit or whatever. Like that might impress my friend's mom or something uh, when I like offer to cook dinner, but it is not impressing Gail and Marcus. But um, yeah, I do like, and like that was a week I was living hard uh, not hard, but just like, you know, enjoying life. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to mix these cocktails for the train. I've done that before. But I this time put them in a thermos with these big ice cubes, you know, those silicone square ones. It's amazing how long the thermos lasted. Two days later at the house I was staying at, I'd finished the drink, of course, but the thermos was just sitting there. The ice cube was still, still solid. Hadn't melted all the way down. It's amazing. You know, I don't think they have the bar carts anymore at Grand Central. You right, can- and I was, this was, uh, yeah, they, they have the... Don't they still have the ones outside the train, or do they just get rid of those? I think they are trying to get rid of those, because I feel... You're right. Like, I didn't see it as I Yeah, went th- there's a whole new profession for you if you want to be more frenetic in selling thermoses of <laughs> Boulevardiers outside. I made it clear outside. I don't want to work with my hands, and I don't want to service anyone. That is far too... <laughs> when I was, like, getting into food in my 
like mid twenties. And this is a question my dad always used to get when he was cooking for like friends and neighbors. They would always be like, "Oh, you got to open a restaurant." And he was like, "That is the hardest." Like, and he's a man that like did construction work his whole life and like built houses and was an architect. And he was like, "That is the hardest, worst business to get into." Um, he loves restaurants, but he's like, "Ah, oh, I can't." I could never handle that stress. I would rather just be on a job site screaming all day long. It's much less stressful. Well, I want to end this episode with with a little game. Because in in King Piglet, Mm -hmm. uh, you have a piece about hurricane preparation. Yes. Seeing somebody at a grocery store, I think during Hurricane Sandy, getting certain supplies. Uh Uh, What were those supplies that that person got? I was in line. I was buying, I guess, what I was supposed to, like peanut butter and apples and water. Um, to live out this, I don't know, two months without power, whatever they thought was going to happen. And there was a guy in front of me that was buying uh, a case of Rolling Rock blue cheese stuffed olives and individually sliced pepperonis. And the bit is just <laughs> about uh, how ridiculous that is. Like, what a big bet that was on uh, what his experience after Sandy was going to be, that he was <laughs> just going to be living on that. Uh, and then it gets really crude, and you can listen to the album if you want to hear the punchline. But yeah. <laughs> Desert Island, what would you bring? <sighs> Food-wise? Yep. Or in general? Food-wise. Food-wise. Desert Island. Man, that's really good. I would bring... I like how you made people just think. Not that anyone thinks this, that I just came out with that Desert Island question. Right. right. Wow, yeah. no one's ever asked that in the history of man before. No, that's good. I mean, food uh, is really specific, yeah. though. Uh, you know, it's usually like... I feel like I would bring... and You know, I really like uh, cold smart water. This is a really ridiculous, but I just like getting a, something about the look of the bottles. And I realize this is idiotic and there's nothing electrolytes in the water. That's not a real thing. <laughs> but an ice cold smart water. Um, Locatelli. I like we, we were raised on Locatelli, like Pecorino Romano rather than um, Parmesan. I think it was just because it was a little cheaper, but like there, it's like a little sharper and saltier than tart, Parmesan. Yeah. It's like really tart. And so. Yeah, Parmesan is like, you know, the king of cheeses and the cheese of kings. And it's like nutty and important and whatever. But I like still prefer the like, even just to slice off the like crazy, like lip puckering tartness of Pecorino. And I really like those Blue Diamond Smokehouse almonds. You know, the one, the like barbecue, they're like really smoky and salty. Um, I feel like those three foods would last. And like, I could kind of live on cheese and almonds. Yeah. Even though this sounded more like a vacation on Desert Island than stranded on one. But I didn't clarify, so... Yeah, I mean, what's the situation? Is, am I taking it off a cruise ship yeah. as it goes down? <laughs> Are there enemies? Because maybe I'll bring, like, food to yeah. kill them with, you know? I like sort terrible of... jobs if they're all lactose intolerant. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just yeah. thinking of me. <laughs> yeah. I'm just... I'm on a desert island. Hopefully, I'll be rescued at some point, and I just need to comfortably pass two weeks. Potluck dinner party. What do I bring? Hmm... Um, you know, something that I think is fun that I, I, I do it for this Thanksgiving, uh, meal with like, uh, family friends every year. is like, I feel like oysters are very fun at a potluck cause it's weird. You have to do it there, but you just bring them and like opening them up and putting them like, it's such a simple thing. It's satisfying. They're not actually that expensive. I mean, they're expensive enough, but you don't have to do a lot of them. You do like a dozen oysters. People are like, wow. And like, they have not seen oysters open before in front of them. Uh, and it's, and then you don't have to prepare anything. I like, I'm someone that likes to minimize. Here's the thing. I don't love potlucks because it's not all about me. I love hosting dinner parties because I can be in control of what's going down. You know, I, 
plan menus and cocktails for like days. Like I get really into it. I like figure out what I'm doing three days before, two days before. Like, and it's and ultimately it's like about the food I make. People are like, "Can I bring anything? Can I bring a dessert?" I'm like, "No, I have it all worked out. I don't need your help." Uh, potlucks are like, "Oh, what is this?" You know, I'll get a pizza delivered there. Like, you know, if you're not going to think through it, I'm not going to think <laughs> through it. Last one is a flight to L.A. from New York. Sure. And then, you know, what food would you bring on that flight? And a red eye back. Oof. You know, I fly back and forth a lot, and I really... I'm only recently learning that I actually, like, am too old to, like, live the way I want to on a flight, which is, like, with a lot of drinks and with food. Like, I just feel... It's a long time to be trapped in a seat, and I have to pee every five minutes anyway, and when I drink, it only gets worse, so it's just, like, standing up, excuse me, shuffling. I totally now like don't have any food on flights and beforehand like i you know may well i like i will even if i have a flight at like 6 a.m i will get up at 5 a.m make like a ton of eggs like maybe some avocado like something just like protein and easy quick get it in me bring some like nuts and maybe dried fruit and just water the whole flight and just like power through because nothing i'm going to bring on is going to be satisfying or like make me feel better you could join my club i call it the travel camels <laughs> so you just you just suck it in and nothing nothing i don't even get up to pee my ideal is that and i feel like i finally realized that as much as it's fun to get a beer at the airport or like to get a bloody mary when you're flying early like yeah that is fun it like makes the flight miserable and i do it too often to like be able to do that maybe if i was flying first class i would have a different yeah. impression but instead i'm you know uh on a window seat 19 rows back so yeah i'm now have converted to the like some nuts and some water and lots of sleep. I'll join the travel camel. Travel camel, I like and, that. And I mean, if if you really want to, you know, step further, you can spit in people's faces. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, and reek. Yeah. I would say for a red eye, though, I'm a big believer in uh, pharmaceuticals. I would have a glass of red wine and an Ambien. Yeah, I have like I travel with earplugs. I have like whole eye mask pillow situations. I don't take a lot of red eyes because they never work out. They're always the worst things. Um, but in a, in a pinch, I would definitely drug it out. I love Ambien. That's, <laughs> my favorite food is Ambien. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. Check out com for all this and more. King Piglet, FYI's The Feed, and who knows? Yeah, who knows what who else? Knows it could all happen. change tomorrow. Thanks Thank, so much, Michael. Thanks very much for being on. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you again to our sponsor, White Oak Pastures, and hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.